You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 4. The universe cannot actually be observed or imagined at all without continual reference to man, without continually trying to find in the wider universe what exists in one way or another in ourselves. In these lectures we will try to obtain at least one aspect of a kind of overall structural picture of the world, which can then lead us to answer the question, what is the relation between morality and natural law in the human being? When we study the human being, parenthesis, I am here only repeating things that have already been spoken and written about from various perspectives, close parenthesis, we find him, first of all, organized into what we may call upper and lower realms, and then we have what forms the connection between the two, the rhythmic region, equalizing or balancing the other two parts. We have to observe, first of all, that there is a radical difference between the laws governing the upper and lower realms. We can realize this difference when we consider the fact that the upper realm, which is regulated by the head, is in its origin the outcome of entirely different laws than those of the sense world. That part of us, which in our last incarnation was a result of forces of the sense world, namely the limb realm, has become what it now is, the head realm, through a metamorphosis, which takes place between death and a new birth, not in relation, of course, to the outer form, but in relation to its formative forces. The forces at present active in our limbs become entirely transformed. Their supersensible constitution is transmuted between death and a new birth and appears in our new earth life incorporated out of the universe into our head constitution. To this is attached, as it were, the rest of man, formed out of the sense world. Embryology could clearly demonstrate this if we would only relate embryological phenomena to one another in a sensible way. And thus we have in our head organization a lawfulness not belonging to this world at all, save only at its origin, that is, insofar as it was present in a previous incarnation. But all that which has caused the transformation of limb forces to head forces is active in an entirely different world, the world in which we live between death and a new birth. Here, then, another world penetrates the world of the senses. Another world is manifested in our head organism. 
In a certain sense, the external world is brought into correspondence with this other world, in that the head projects the principal sense organs outward. The world that extends through space and runs its course in time is perceived by our senses. It penetrates into us through our senses, and so it too, after all, belongs in a certain sense to the head organism. In relation to our limb realm, on the other hand, we are in a state of sleep. I have often spoken of this sleep state of man in relation to his will nature, in relation to all that lives in the limb realm. We do not know how we move our limbs, how the will causes the movement. We only examine the movement afterward as an outer phenomenon through our senses. We are asleep in our limb organization in the same sense as we are asleep in the universe between going to sleep and awaking. So here we have before us an entirely different world. We can say that we have, firstly, a world which outwardly manifests all that speaks to our senses, all that we perceive through eyes, ears, etc. To this world we belong through that portion of ourselves which we have called the head realm. But our connection with the other world that lies behind this one arises through our limbs, a realm in which we are unconscious. We sleep into this world, whether we do so in the domain of our will or whether we sleep into the universe between going to sleep and waking. These two worlds are actually so constituted that the one is turned toward us and the other away from us, as it were. The latter lies behind the world of sense, although we have our origin in it. Man felt in olden times, and the East still feels it, that a reconciliation between the two is possible. As you know, we in the West search for the reconciliation in a different way. But in the Orient, even today, people still attempt to find it in a relatively conscious way, through their appro- though, although their approach is nowadays outdated by pre- for present-day humanity. When we eat, the process takes place in the sphere of sleep, unconsciously. We are not aware of what is really happening when we eat an egg or a cabbage. It takes place in the unconscious, like sleep. The cabbage and the egg manifest their exterior to our sense perception, but the eating really belongs to a completely different world. Mediation between these two worlds, however, is to be found in our breathing. Although the latter is to a certain extent unconscious, it is not as unconscious as our digestion. In spite of the fact that our breathing is not as conscious as our hearing and seeing, it is more conscious than a process such as digestion, and while in the East today the attempt to make the digestive process a conscious one has as a rule ceased, parenthesis, this used to be done in olden times, close parenthesis, the breathing process is still made conscious in a particular way. Parenthesis, snakes raise the process of digestion into consciousness. But the consciousness of the snake is, of course, not human consciousness. Ruminants do this too. Close parenthesis. There is a certain training of the breathing, where inhaling and exhaling are regulated in such a way 
that the process is transformed into a sense perception. Thus we find respiration placed, as it were, between conscious sense perception and the complete unconsciousness of assimilation and transmutation of physical matter. Man, in fact, dwells in three worlds, the one of which he is consciously aware, the other of which he remains entirely unconscious, and the third, breathing, acting as a connecting link or mediator between the two. Now it is a fact that the process of breathing is also a kind of assimilation. At all events, it is a material process, though taking place in a more rarefied manner. It is an intermediate state between actual transmutation of matter, assimilation, and the process of sense perception, the completely conscious experience of the external world. In the state in which we find ourselves, between falling asleep and awaking, we experience in the environment which then surrounds us events which only enter into our normal consciousness as dreams. Here man steps across into the other different world I have spoken of, and the dreams reveal through their very nature how we step across. Consider for a moment how nearly related are dreams to the process of respiration, the rhythm of breathing, how often you can trace the after-effect of this rhythm when you dream. Man steps across the border, as it were, of the world of consciousness, when he dips ever so slightly into this other world in which he is when he sleeps or when he dreams. There lies also the world of imaginations. In imaginative perception, this becomes a fully conscious world for us. We have conscious perception there, which we merely sip, as it were, in our dreams. We shall now have to consider a correspondence that is found to exist, an absolute correspondence, in respect of number. I have already often drawn your attention to this correspondence between man and the world in which he evolves. I have pointed to the fact that our rhythm of breathing, 18 breaths per minute, manifests something that is in remarkable accord with other processes of the universe. We take 18 breaths per minute, which over a whole day comes to 25,920 respirations, and we arrive at the same number when we calculate how many days are contained in a normal life term of 72 years. That also gives about 25,920 days, so that something may be said to exhale so that something may be said to exhale our astral body and ego on falling asleep and inhale them again upon waking. Always in conformity with the same number rhythm. And again, when we consider how the sun moves, whether apparently or really does not matter, advancing a little each year in what we call the precession of the equinoxes, when we consider the number of years it takes the sun to make this journey round the whole zodiac, once more, we get 25,920 years, the Platonic year. The fact is that within the boundaries set by birth and death, this human life of ours is indeed fashioned 
down to its most infinitesimal processes, as we have seen in breathing, in accordance with the laws of the universe. But in the correspondence we have observed up to now between the macrocosm and man the microcosm, we have made our observations in a realm where the correspondence is obvious and evident. There are, however, other very important correspondences. For example, consider the following. I want to lead you through number to something else. Take the 18 respirations per minute, making 1,080 per hour, and in 24 hours, 25,920 respirations. That is, we must multiply 18 by 60 by 24 in order to arrive at 25,920. Taking this as the cycle of the precession of the equinoxes and dividing it by 60 and again by 24, we would naturally get 18 years. And what do these 18 years really mean? Consider these 25,920 respirations correspond to a human day of 24 hours. In other words, this 24-hour day is the day of the microcosm. Eighteen respirations may serve as the unit of rhythm. And now, take the complete circle described by the precession of the equinoxes and call it not a platonic year, but a great day of the heavens, a macrocosmic day. How long would one respiration on this scale have to occupy to correspond with human respiration? Its duration would have to be 18 years, a respiration made by the being of the macrocosm. Taking the statements of modern astronomy, we need not interpret them here, we shall speak of their meaning later, let us now examine what modern astronomers call mutation of the Earth's axis. You are aware that the Earth's axis lies obliquely upon the ecliptic and that astronomers speak of an oscillation of the Earth's axis around this point, and they call this nutation. The axis completes one revolution around this point in just about 18 years. It is really 18 years, 7 months, but we need not consider the fraction, although it is quite possible to calculate this too with exactitude. But with these 18 years, something else is intimately connected. For it is not merely on the fact of mutation, this trembling, this rotation of the Earth's axis in a double cone around the Earth's center, and the period of 18 years for its completion, it is not only on this fact that we have to fix our minds, but we find that simultaneously with it another process takes place. The moon appears each year in a different position, because, like the sun, it ascends and descends from the ecliptic, proceeding in a kind of oscillating motion again and again toward the equator ecliptic. And every eighteen years it appears once more in the same position it occupied eighteen years before. You see, there is a connection between this mutation and the path of the moon. Mutation is, in truth, nothing other than the moon's path. It is the projection of the motion of the moon so that we can actually observe the breathing of the macrocosm. We only need notice the path of the moon in 18 years 
or, in other words, the nutation of the earth's axis. The earth dances, and in such a manner as to describe a cone, a double cone, in eighteen years. And this dancing is a reflection of the macrocosmic breathing. This takes place just as many times in the macrocosmic year as the eighteen human respirations during the microcosmic day of twenty-four hours. So we really have one macrocosmic respiration per minute in this nutation movement. In other words, we observe this breathing of the macrocosm through nutation or the movement of the moon, and we have before us what corresponds to respiration in man. And now, what does this all mean? The meaning of it is that as we pass from waking to sleep, or only from the holy conscious to the dream state, we enter another world, and in contrast to the ordinary laws of day, years, etc., and also the platonic year, we find in this insertion of a moon rhythm something that has the same relationship in the macrocosm that breathing, the semi-conscious process of respiration, has to our full consciousness. We have therefore not only to consider a world which is spread out before us, but another world which projects into and permeates our own. Just as we have before us a second part of the human organism when observing the breathing process, namely the rhythmic realm, as opposed to the perceptive or head realm, so we have in what appears as the yearly moon motion, or rather the eighteen-year motion of the moon, the identity between one year and one human respiration. We have this second world interpenetrating our own. There can therefore be no question of inhabiting only one world. We have the world that we can observe as the world of the senses, but then we have a world underpinned by other laws, which stands in exactly the same relationship to the world of the senses as our breathing does to our consciousness. And this other world is revealed to us as soon as we interpret in the right way this moon movement, this mutation of the earth's axis. These considerations should enable you to realize the impossibility of investigating in a one-sided way the laws manifesting in the world. The modern materialistic thinker is in quest of a single system of natural laws. In this he deludes himself. What he should say is rather as follows. The world of the senses is certainly a world in which I find myself embedded and to which I belong. It is that world which is explained by natural science in terms of cause and effect. But another world interpenetrates this one and is regulated by different laws. Each world is subject to its own system of laws. As long as we are of the opinion that one kind of system of laws could suffice for our world and that all hangs upon the thread of cause and effect, so long shall we be shrouded in complete illusion. Only when we can perceive from facts such as the moon's motion and nutation of the earth's axis that another world extends into this one, only then 
are we on the right path? And now, you see, these are the things in which the spiritual and material, as we call them, touch each other, or let us say the soul world and the material. He who can faithfully observe what is contained within his own self will find the following, and these are things of which humanity must gradually become aware. There are many among you, I imagine, who have already passed the age of eighteen years and about seven months. That was an important moment. Others will have passed twice that number of years, thirty-seven years and two months, again an important time. After that we have a third very momentous period, eighteen years and seven months later at the age of fifty-five years and nine months. Few can notice as yet, not having been trained to do so, the effects and important changes taking place within the individual soul at these times. The nights passed during these periods are the most important nights in an individual's life. It is then that the macrocosm completes its eighteen respirations, completes one minute, and we open a window, as it were, facing quite another world. But as I said, people are not yet aware of these points in their lives. Everyone, however, could try to let his mental eye, E-Y-E, look back over the years he has passed, and if he is over fifty-five years old, to recognize three such important epochs, others two, and most of you at any rate one. In these epochs events took place, which rush up into this world of ours out of quite a different one. Our world opens at these moments to another world. If we wish to describe this more clearly, we can say that our world is at these times penetrated anew by astral streams. They flow in and out. Of course, this really happens every year, but we are here concerned with the 18 years, as they correspond to the 18 respirations per minute. In short, our attention is drawn through the cosmic clock to the breathing of the macrocosm in which we are embedded. This correspondence with another world, which is manifested to the motion of the moon, is exceptionally important. Because, you see, the world which at these times projects into our own is the very world into which we pass during our sleep, when the ego and the astral body leave our physical and etheric bodies. It must not be thought that the world composing our everyday environment is merely permeated in an abstract way by the astral world. Rather, should we say, it breathes in the astral world, and we can observe the astral in this breathing process through the moon's motion or nutation. You will realize that we have here come to something of great significance. If you remember what I said recently, we may put it in the following way. We have, on the one hand, our world, as it is generally observed. And we have, in addition, the materialistic superstition that, for instance, if we gaze upward, we see the sun, a ball of gas, as it is described in books. This is nonsense. The sun is not a ball of gas. But in that place where the sun is, there is something less than empty space, a sucking 
absorbing body, in fact, while all around it is that which exerts pressure. Consequently, what comes to us from the sun is nothing to do with any product of combustion in the sun, but is a reflection, a raying back of all that the universe has radiated to it. Where the sun is, is emptier than empty space. This can be said of all parts of the universe where we find ether. For this reason, it is so difficult for the physicist to speak of ether, for he thinks that ether is also matter, though more rarefied than ordinary matter. Materialism is still very busy with this perpetual rarefying, both the materialism of natural science as well as the materialism of theosophy. It distinguishes first dense matter, then etheric matter, more rarefied, then astral matter, still more rarefied, and then there is the mental, and I do not know what else, always more and more rarefied. The only difference in this theory of rarefying between the two forms of materialism is that the one recognizes more degrees of rarefaction than the other. But in the transition from quantifiable matter to ether rarefaction, excuse me, but in the transition from quantifiable matter to ether rarefaction plays no part. Anyone who believes that in ether we have to do merely with a rarefying process is like someone who says, I have here a purse full of money. I repeatedly take from it, and the money becomes less and less. I take away still more till at last none remains, nothing is left. But, in fact, one can continue. The nothing can become still less, for if we get into debt, our money becomes less than nothing. In the same way, not only does matter become empty space, but it becomes negative, less than nothing, emptier than emptiness. It assumes a sucking nature. Ether is sucking, absorbing. Matter presses, ether absorbs. The sun is an absorbing, sucking sphere, and wherever ether is present, we have this force of suction. Here we step over into the other aspect of three-dimensional space. We pass from pressure to suction. That which immediately surrounds us in this world, that of which we are constituted as physical and etheric human beings, is both pressing and sucking or absorbing. We are a combination of both. Whereas the sun possesses the power of suction only, being nothing but ether, nothing but suction. It is the undulating wave of pressure and suction, ponderable matter and ether, that forms in its alternation a living organization. And the living organism continually breathes in the astral, the breathing expresses itself through the moon's motion or nutation. And here we begin to divine a second aspect or principle of the world's construction. The one aspect, pressure and suction, physical and etheric. The second, astral. The astral is neither physical nor etheric, but is continually inhaled and exhaled, and nutation manifests this. Now, a certain astronomical fact was observed even in most ancient times. Many thousands of years before the Christian era, the Egyptians knew 
that after a period of seventy-two years the fixed stars in their apparent course gain one day on the sun. It seems to us, does it not, that the fixed stars revolve and the sun too revolves, but the latter revolves more slowly, so that after seventy-two years the stars are appreciably ahead. This is the reason for the movement of the vernal vernal point, the spring equinoctial point, namely that the stars move faster. If the spring equinox moves further and further away, the fixed stars must have altered their position in relation to the sun. Briefly, we find that at the end of seventy-two years, the fixed stars are ahead of the sun by one day. For instance, they occupy a particular position on the 30th December, while the sun only reaches that point again on the 31st December. The sun has lost a day. After a lapse of 25,920 years, this loss is so great that the sun has described a complete revolution and once again is back at the position we originally noted. We see, therefore, that in seventy-two years the sun is one day behind the fixed stars. Now these seventy-two years are approximately the normal lifespan of a human being, composed of twenty-five thousand nine hundred and twenty days. Thus, when we multiply seventy-two years by three-sixty and consider the human span of life as one day, we have the human life as one day of the macrocosm. Man is exhaled, as it were, from the macrocosm, and his life is one day in the macrocosmic year. So that this revolution, this circle, described by the precession of the equinoxes, indicating the macrocosmic year, as already known in the Egyptians to the Egyptians thousands of years ago, for they looked upon this period of seventy-two years as very important, This apparent revolution of the vernal point is connected with man's life and death in the universe, with the life and death that is of the macrocosm. And the laws of the life and death of man are something that we must pursue. We have already found how mutation points to another world. As our sense-perception world points to one world, so mutation points to another, the breathing world. And now, through what present-day astronomy calls precession, we have something we may again call a transition, a transition this time to a state of deep sleep, a transition to still another, a third world. We have thus three worlds, interpenetrating one another, interrelated. But we must not attempt simply to link these worlds in a causal way. Three worlds, a threefold world, as man is a threefold being, One, the world of sense surrounding us, the world we perceive, a second world whose presence is indicated by the motions of the moon, and a third which makes itself known to us by the motion of the equinoctial point, or we might say, by the path of the sun. This third world indeed remains about as unknown to us as the world of our own will is unknown to our ordinary consciousness. It is important, therefore, to search everywhere for correspondences between the human microcosm and the macrocosm. And when people of the East, if only in a decadent way, 
nowadays seek to acquire breathing consciousness, as was done in ancient Oriental wisdom, this is the manifestation of a desire to slip over into this other world, which can otherwise only be recognized through what the moon, so to speak, wills in our world. But in those ancient times, when there was still an ancient wisdom coming to man in a different manner from the way in which we have to seek wisdom nowadays, in those times man also knew how to see this working of inner law in other connections and correspondences. In the Old Testament, the initiates, who were familiar with these matters, always used a certain image or picture. The picture, that is, of the relation between moonlight and sunlight. This we can find also, in a certain sense, in the Gospels, as I have recently shown you. We generally speak of moonlight as being reflected sunlight. I am speaking now in the sense of physics, and I shall have to show later on that these expressions are really very inaccurate. In the Old Testament, moonlight represented the Yahweh, or Jehovah power. This power was conceived as a reflected power, and the initiates, though not of course the orthodox rabbis of the Old Testament, knew the Messiah, the Christ, will come, and he will be the direct sunlight. Yahweh is only his advance reflection. Yahweh is the sunlight, but not direct sunlight. Of course, we are speaking here not of physical sunlight, but of spiritual reality. Christ entered into human evolution. He who had been present previously only in reflection, in an indirect way, in the form of Jehovah. And the need arose to think of the Christ who lived in Jesus as the result of a different set of laws from those inherent in what a normal perception of nature sees. But if we do not admit this other set of laws, if we believe that the world exists only as the result of cause and effect, then there is no place for the Christ. His place must be prepared by our recognition of three interpenetrating worlds. Then it becomes possible to say, it may be that in this world of sense everything is related through the law of cause and effect as maintained by natural science. But another world permeates this one, and to this other world belongs everything that happened in connection with the mystery of Golgotha. In our times, when the desire for an understanding of these matters is becoming more and more manifest, it is important to realize that this understanding must be sought through recognition of these three interpenetrating worlds, which exist simultaneously and are entirely different one from the another. This means that we must not seek for one system of laws only, but for three, and we must seek for them within ourselves. If you consider what I have just said, you will see that it will not do to adopt the methods of the Copernican system and simply draw ellipses intended to show the path of Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Earth, Venus, Mercury, and Sun. That is not what is wanted at all. What is wanted is rather to look at the laws that are active in the worlds that are physically perceptible and see how these laws are interwoven by an altogether different set of laws and that especially the present moon in its motion 
presents something that is in no way causally connected with the rest of the stellar system, such as would be the case were the moon a part of that system in the same way as other planets. The moon, however, is related to quite another world, which, as it were, interpenetrates ours, and which represents the breathing process of our universe, as the sun represents the interpenetration of our universe by the ether. Before one engages in astronomy, one must educate oneself in a qualitative sense about planetary motion and interdependence in space. For one must be quite clear that sun matter and any other matter, earth matter, for instance, can in no circumstances be brought into a simple relationship, because the matter of the sun is, in comparison with the matter of the earth, something absorbing and sucking while the latter exerts pressure. The motions which express themselves in mutation are motions proceeding from the astral world and not from anything that can be found in Newton's principles. It is just this Newtonism that has driven us so far into materialism because it seizes on the uttermost abstractions. It speaks of a force of gravitation. The sun, it says, attracts the earth, or the earth attracts the moon. A force of attraction exists between these bodies, like some invisible cable. But if really nothing but this force of attraction existed, there would be no cause for the moon to revolve round the earth, or the earth round the sun. The moon would simply fall onto the earth. This would indeed have happened ages ago, if gravitation alone were acting or the earth would have fallen into the sun. It is therefore quite impossible for us to look to gravitation alone for the means of explaining the imagined or actual motions of celestial bodies. So, what do they do? Let us see. Here we have a planet imbued with a constant desire to fall into the sun, supposing we were to have the law of gravitation alone. But now we will suppose that this planet has at some time or other been given another force, a tangential force. This impetus acts with such and such a power and the force of gravitation acts at the same time with such and such a power so that eventually the planet does not fall into the sun but has to move along a line resulting from both forces. You see that Newton's theory finds it necessary to assume some kind of original impetus, some kind of first push in the case of each planet, of each moving celestial body. There must always be some extra-mundane God somewhere who gives this impetus, who imparts this tangential force. This is always presupposed. And remember, this assumption was made at a time when we had lost all idea of bringing the material and the spiritual into any kind of connection, when we were incapable of conceiving of anything but a perfectly external push. Here we have an instance of the inability of materialism to understand matter. I have repeatedly drawn your attention to this of late. It follows that materialism is therefore also unable to understand the motions of matter, and is compelled to give quite an anthropomorphic explanation of them, picturing God as a being with wholly human attributes who simply gives the moon a push and the earth a push. 
the earth and moon then attract each other, in quotes, and behold, from these two forces, the push and the attraction, we have their movements in the heavens. It is from ideas of this kind that the solar system is constructed today. But to get a real understanding of the universe, it is absolutely necessary to look for the connection between what lives in man and what lives in the macrocosm. For man is truly a microcosm in the macrocosm. Of this we will speak further tomorrow. The end of lecture 4.